Hello, and welcome back to Sustain. I'm Maria Archibald, and this is a podcast about environmental, social, and economic justice. Today, I chat with Dr. Annie Isabel Fukushima, a scholar activist and associate professor in the Ethnic Studies Division in the School for Cultural and Social Transformation at the University of Utah. Her research examines migration, displacement, and human trafficking. When we think about trafficking in this kind of sensationalized way where there is a person who's in need of rescue, um, then we forget that there's actually a system that creates those conditions. We forget that there's actually a lot of people um, who, even if unintentionally, are involved in normalizing it. In this episode, Dr. Fukushima discusses her work on migration and human trafficking and explores the connection between racialized and gender-based violence, sustainability, and environmental justice. My name is Dr. Annie Isabel Fukushima. I am I wear many hats. I have many titles. Um, I'm an associate dean of undergraduate studies, the director of the Office of Undergraduate Research. I'm an associate professor of ethnic studies. I'm co-principal investigator of the Gender-Based Violence Consortium. I would say if there is something to describe me simply, it is scholar activist. Thank you so much and welcome to the podcast. Uh, You said you wear many hats, and this is also certainly true in your research, which explores a number of distinct yet intersecting issues. Could you tell us about the experiences that led you to the scholarship and the activism that you do today? There's different moments where I reflect on my own family's genealogies, and that is an entry point, I think, for many of us who study issues of immigration. Uh, There is some connection to migratory pathways. I think many people are migratory, whether we are thinking about internal migration, right? We forget that many of us move within states to states, counties to counties. Uh, Many of us are border crossers in that way. Um, But my family is also border crossers. Um, You know, my mother's from Korea. So there was a deep interest in thinking about issues of immigration and how it connects to a range of larger systemic issues. And, um, and so there was personal connections there, but there was also the journey that happened, um, you know, while I was in graduate school at University of California, Berkeley, I worked in community um, because, you know, as many know, in California, it's really expensive to live. And so I found myself at the same time while being a graduate student, also a full-time caseworker, working with survivors of violence, of human trafficking, who were migrant, who were domestic U.S. citizens who'd been trafficked. Um, and so much of my work has been very much shaped by the community partnerships and the collaborations that I've been so fortunate to have with different organizations across the U.S., My work is very much informed by those connections and community. And so as you see um, in my kind of academic journey, uh, the different kind of priorities my research has taken has oftentimes mirrored the priorities of the communities that I'm collaborating with. Much of your research looks at migration and human trafficking and sort of the connection between those two experiences. And I'm just wondering if you can dig a little bit more deeply into that work, specifically what you hope listeners will be able to take away from from your research about migrant experiences and migrant rights. Yeah, 
Um, you know, oftentimes when we think about issues of human trafficking, it seems like this kind of specialized, special topic, even movie-like. Um, and I know that a lot of people have used the film Taken to describe how they understand what is human trafficking. It is this thing that happens to people somewhere else. Um, and it happens to, uh, you know, um, vulnerable folks or folks traveling when they're tourists elsewhere. People oftentimes uh, think of it as something that happens in other countries, uh, countries where uh, people don't have uh, the same kinds of rights that we assume are the ideal rights. Um, like we assume we have in the US. They also might think about it as a particular gendered narrative that it oftentimes happened to those who identify as women. Um, but what I've been learning is that there are also so many inequities and injustice um, that are occurring to communities that are so vital to our um, economies, to our life, um, to the food that we eat, to um, even the care that we give uh, from our families, uh, caring for our children, to um, our healthcare industry, working in those healthcare sectors, to food industries from farm to table. Um, and so we have communities that are so vital to that thread um, of, of life that, you know, sustains all of us. And this is reflected in my book, Migrant Crossings, Witnessing Human Trafficking in the U.S., is that I found that oftentimes um, that there are multiple intersections happening, um, that uh, communities that are migratory are working in particular laboring industries. Um, and by working in those particular laboring industries, they're a essential part of the sort of thread of a community, but they're also vulnerable because of particular kinds of protections that aren't afforded to them. So when we think about citizenship, citizenship is about the right to have rights. And that oftentimes for migratory communities, they do not have full access to those rights. Um, and so in my work, I've thought a lot about racialized and gender-based violence and how it intersects with uh, laboring industries as well as with migratory pathways. You mentioned the film Taken, which I saw for the first time on a plane en route to another country, um, and how this film sensationalizes our understanding of human trafficking. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to this and how such representations in pop culture and in the media affect real people who experience trafficking. I remember when I was uh, earlier in my academic journey, and I would give presentations about human trafficking and what it was, just kind of the fundamentals where we oftentimes understand it to be this complex issue where force, um, so physical violence, fraud, so people are lied about their conditions, or coercion, so they're threatened um, about the conditions or threatened to stay in particular conditions um, for their labor um, or sex. And... Um, and I would give these kinds of conversations, presentations, and I remember oftentimes I would have my friends who were uh, from Latinidad um, come up to me and say, you know, that sounds like what my parents went through, but we never called it trafficking. And I think that one of the things that we know about the conditions of our communities is that this sort of normalization of abuse in particular conditions occurs across the country. Um, and so those are some of the things that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and when I think about the migrant experience um, and returning to the film Taken is that it's a sensationalized story of that happens um, and that people are in need of a particular kind of rescue. Um, and when we think about trafficking in this kind of sensationalized way where there is a 
person who's in need of rescue, um, then we forget that there's actually a system that creates those conditions. We forget that there's actually a lot of people um, who, even if unintentionally are involved in normalizing it, it isn't at the moment of rescue that we change society. It is actually at the moment when we start to make systemic changes that we can address these conditions. Um, and so films like Taken, um, and there's like a whole slew of them, they need a rescuer um, and they oftentimes depend on a story of that there is a hero that is um you know, going to rescue this victim of violence. Um, but what we forget is oftentimes survivors of violence have been surviving under conditions independently with or without us. Um, and that it is not rescue that they need, but actually oftentimes very fundamental basic needs. They oftentimes need uh, immigration rights. They oftentimes need housing. They need food um, and access to food. They need to be reunified with their family members. Um, they need to feel connection um, and, uh, and be able to linguistically access where they are living the information that makes them feel like a full human being. And so, um, yeah, so this, these, uh, the media representations can create harm. Um, they also can create limited language for us to understand what is happening. So this kind of, you know, film of taken perpetuates a myth of stranger danger that is very common in, you know, narratives or, you know, in particular in the nineties around sexual violence. Um, and what we know is that violence in general um, isn't something that's happening out there. It is very much tied to our own communities, our own families. I want to bring us back around to environmental justice, which is the focus of this podcast. And um, as we know, environmental justice is deeply intertwined with a number of social issues. So I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to how you understand migration, displacement, and environmental justice as interrelated. I would say since 2018, I've been observing organizations across the country working with the Freedom Network USA, which is a national network of experts on human trafficking. And I've been observing their housing project initiatives. And um, when we think of housing, we think of, you know, urban environments and whatever, right, um, places people live. Um, but the conversations um, and what I've been seeing um, to connect it with environmental issues is that you know we had some uh, conversations with folks in South Dakota, for example, and so here they were making the intersection between the no uh, what's happening with no dapple with the um, workers, and you know around dapple um, and how the increase in um, you know workers that were non-native coming into non-native communities um, and how that impacted. Um, survivors of violence uh, or created conditions for violence where a lot of the violence that they were seeing was um, non-native against native communities. Um, and so, you know, we were having conversations around that, um, thinking about the wide range of contexts of um, rurality to urban environments where people living in more rural contexts are unable to access resources uh, when they do experience violence. Um, and that there's an inequity um, just even in that context. So we went to South Dakota. Then after that, we went to New Orleans. Um, and there, you know, um, as most are familiar with um, the sort of environmental realities of flooding that is happening. Um, and so some of the things that I was witnessing um, there was how organizations adapt for these kind of realities of constant flooding, how it impacted the work that they were doing. Um, and that when we think about flooding, it impacts uh, 
people. And I know that there were stories of, you know, concerns and whenever there is a natural disaster, there's, there's oftentimes in the media, a story um, that gets also put out there around concerns around increase in trafficking and abuse. Um, And I think that there is um, a lot of complexity to that narrative. Um, When we think about like, well, there are conditions then that are happening in which people's needs are not being met. And so why is it that survival kind of things are happening, whether it is um, surviving off of others to live um, or, um, you know, taking advantage of others' vulnerabilities so one can live. Um, And so I think that those are some of the things that when I think about the relationship between environmental and immigration issues and violence that I see really cohering. Um, those are that's just examples around housing. Uh, but some of the stuff that I was thinking about with food um, and food security is also very much tied to it. And so as we start to think about how our crops um, and how our very food industries are impacted by environmental realities, that is also going to impact migrant workers um, and opportunities for labor, um, as well as the conditions in which we are oftentimes able to connect them to resources and maybe are not able to now. And so, yeah, I think that there is a range of issues that start to cohere around immigration, racialized and gender-based violence and environmental issues. Um, But what is it, you know, I think when I think about the environment, um, it's, you know, oftentimes people think of it out there, but we all live in environments um, that we need to sustain our lives and to be sustained human beings. And so, Um, The environment isn't just where the trees um, and all those things live, but uh, we all live in this planet together and and our planetary future is tied to each other and tied to how we sustain each other. Um, Those are just some of the examples. I've also written a little bit about fishing and those kinds of industries that came out in a chapter where I focused on Asia Pacific more. And there I wanted to kind of think more about the links between, you know, different kinds of contexts from Southeast Asia to the Pacific to West Coast, California, and how when we think about um, food industries um, uh, that were fishing to farming and factories, right, the means of production, were all very much tied to migrant labor and the context um, of witnessing survivors. And I'll give you an example where we oftentimes forget about it is in food industries. Uh, For example, uh, when we think about where we buy our tomatoes from, a coalition of Immokalee workers um, our organization that works in Florida to raise visibility around, um, you know, the tomato and how farmers and, um, you know, agriculture workers who are migratory themselves, oftentimes migratory, some are U.S. citizens as well, um, labor under um, very difficult conditions. I think COVID-19 exposed a lot of things about our uh, realities and amidst COVID-19, we would see these images of agriculture workers working even amidst fires that were happening uh, not far from them in California. And so the smoke um, and the impact of that kind of environmental reality, and I'm here, I'm thinking about California and the West Coast specifically, where we saw a lot of these fires and continue to see a lot of these fires happening. And I think that oftentimes when people think about migrant workers, um, because of the perception around who has rights or even misperception, is that we oftentimes forget that they have some fundamental basic needs 
um, not just around housing and the stuff that I talked around food, but also um, the right to work in an environment um, in which there isn't a health hazard to them. Um, and what we saw with COVID-19 is that a lot of these things started to get exposed um, through social media from the farm workers working to feed um, the rest of the United States that had locked in during COVID-19 to even um, thinking about our meat packing industries, which are also a whole other environmental conversation. Um, uh, but thinking about just even in that context where they were also workers were working in hazardous conditions. And so when I think about the connection and the inner linking between immigration and environmental issues is that they're very much tied to each other. And that I do think that there need to be more conversations. And I guess, you know, in thinking and turning towards my colleagues who do more work on racialized and gender-based violence issues is that um, I also think that there needs to be invitations in those contexts to also make the link with the environment more too, because oftentimes a lot of, um, you know, anti-violence folks are so focused on the kind of crisis response that they're not able to look at the larger macro issues of the environment that are tied to the work that they're doing. And so I think that there is so much opportunities um, to build more coalition around issues that are of concern to each other that are very much intertwined. I think it could actually impact policy. And I think that what we know around address, addressing issues of violence is that we need critical mass. Thank you so much. And I definitely agree with you. I think we're much more likely to make transformative change if people from disparate struggles and movements are able to see what their movements have in common and come together. You've mentioned farm workers and food a few times now, and so this feels like a good segue into your work on the intersection of migration, trafficking, and food security. Could you speak a little bit more to the work that you've done in this area and what you've learned about that intersection? One of the articles that I wrote focused on, um, uh, it was very much inspired by uh, this moment in my book um, where I had talked about a case of a Peruvian domestic worker that was trafficked um, in California. And one of the things that really stood out to me was how the domestic worker from Peru um, survived. Um, And that some of the things that came up in court records included how her food was weighed. Um, So her trafficker would weigh her food um, and kind of portion it out that way. And so it came to the point where she was literally starving. And so to survive, she would pick fruits from a tree. Um, Eventually, um, her teeth began to rot or she experienced a lot of dental issues because of that. And so, you know, I that case really stood out to me in thinking about why is it that we don't talk more about food security issues. Um, And so one of the things then I went back to the 500 records that I had collected, I then focused on the way that food came up in records. Um, And so what I found is that um, is that what we were seeing is a range of food insecurities um, that were occurring uh, from, um, you know, people working in, you know, industries of agriculture, to those that were working in the intimacies of the home of domestic work, um, to also, uh, you know, literally in food industries of, you know, um, farm to table kind of industries. 
and that the very people that are sustaining us and feeding us were experiencing food insecurity themselves, and we weren't talking about it. And so I wanted to focus on how food insecurity came up. And what I found is that um, it was also not just that they were experiencing insecurity, but they were also experiencing food as a weapon. And so that in abusive conditions, their traffickers were weaponizing the food against them from force feeding to um, what have you. That's kind of the things that came up for me around food insecurity. Um, and I think um, it's, it's an ongoing issue. And I think that what we saw in global pandemic, um, as we saw food um, and basic needs literally disappearing from, you know, the counters as we go into stores, we see everything disappearing. Um, some of the things that immediately comes to mind then is when we think about our most vulnerable, those that are migratory, those that are experiencing violence, whether that violence is trafficking, domestic violence, or other kinds of violence in their lives, the question comes to mind is um, how are they sustaining themselves through it? Uh, because we all need food to survive. Thanks for that answer. To wrap us up, I'd like to take us to a question that I ask of everyone I interview, which is what does sustainability mean to you? Yeah, sustainability is such a complicated thing. Um, and I think that sustainability to me, um, in the context of immigration and racialized and gender-based violence, what sustainability looks like is that um, people have their full needs met um, to live as full human beings with whatever, you know, doing whatever it is that they are committed to doing, whatever that work or life looks like, but that we feel sustained and like full human beings. So I think of sustainability as a full human being, that we all feel like full human beings, but sustainability cannot be delinked from the things and the mechanisms that make us feel full. And so when I think of sustainability, it is tied to those systems. So we need sustainable systems uh, that support people. Um, but like, I also think that oftentimes people think of sustainability in the context of just a, an environment. And I think that people oftentimes think of environments as something that's out there. They really do. Um, they forget that environments are everything that we inhabit. Um, and so uh, we would need all of that to be sustainable too. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you thought. You're listening to Sustain, a podcast by the University of Utah Sustainability Office. For monthly episodes, subscribe to Sustain on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To learn more about our work, visit sustainability.utah.edu or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sustainable U of U. Interviews and editing of this podcast were done by me, Maria Archibald. Music in this podcast was written and performed by Yusuf Farah.